I'm thinking today's episode we're going to call Good Fortune, and yeah, it's a double entendre. I wanted you all to walk a mile or maybe 40 minutes or so in the shoes of a very interesting and accomplished woman. After our conversation, I found myself thinking that comedian Jerry Seinfeld was one lucky guy to be Mr. Jessica Seinfeld. Because let's face it, celebrity can offer so many opportunities, and I think we can agree that far too few make strategic decisions and maximize their impact on the world. Jessica Seinfeld is one of those precious few. Jessica seems to have more layers than an onion. An author of five New York Times best-selling cookbooks, a founder of a nonprofit, and just recently a graduate from NYU holding a master's degree in public administration. But hold on, please, and skeptics, please check this at the door. Don't you be stereotyping about celebrity pet projects, because this is one remarkable organization. It started simply, as many do. I'm lucky, says Jessica, others are not. Let's start donating diapers, gently used strollers, and other necessities. And 21 years later, the Good Plus Foundation has emerged as one of America's most effective poverty-fighting nonprofits. The Good Plus Foundation works to dismantle multi-generational poverty by pairing tangible goods with innovative services for under-resourced fathers, mothers, and caregivers, creating an upward trajectory for the whole family. From my years in this sector, I know one thing for sure. All the money and influence in the world means absolutely nothing without a sense of purpose and a bold and compelling vision. Clearly, Jessica and her team have both and I wanted you to know that and know more about them. My job today is to introduce you to a woman with a big platform and a woman with a big mission. When I heard her story, I wanted to know more about how all these different identities weave together. Settle in for a terrific conversation about the good fortune of Jessica Seinfeld. Emphasis on the word good. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Jessica Seinfeld is the founder and chair of the board of the Good Plus Foundation, a national nonprofit that uses a multi-generational approach to address family poverty. Jessica founded the organization in 2001, shortly after the birth of her first child, Sasha who's just home for the holidays. The daughter of a 30-year veteran social worker, Jessica felt compelled to create a mechanism to provide critical goods to parents living on low income. For over 20 years, the organization has provided goods and support to encourage families to attend programs like job training workshops and co-parenting classes. These programs have a proven track record of supporting mothers and creating a healthier, happier environment for children through a focus on father engagement. You can learn more about the Good Plus Foundation's groundbreaking work around fatherhood and families. Read Jessica's CNN op-ed, which you will find in the show notes. Jessica is a graduate of the University of Vermont. Jessica's work with the Good Plus Foundation inspired her to return to school, achieving a master's of public administration from NYU in 2022. She is the mother of three kids, two cats, two dachshunds, and she lives in Manhattan with her husband, Jerry Seinfeld. And I mentioned the cookbook thing, and I just want to say thank you because my son is a vegan, and before you, I had no idea what to do. Jessica, I am delighted to have you with us to share your insights with our listeners. Thank you, Joan. What an amazing introduction. Thank you. Uh, You really uh, did your research, and uh, I feel like you made it easy for me. I had pretty good material, I think. Um, so Jessica, I like to understand the DNA of people when it comes to doing good. Some folks, I think, you know, go way, 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 way back, Jessica, right? Some folks were always that kid. Then there are other people that have this kind of aha moment. Others saw it modeled in their family. Now, I read that your mom did some work as a victim service advocate. So I, I wonder if that was at play, but I'd love to hear about how you came 
to the world of doing good? Well, my mom was a social worker by training. She also got her master's at NYU when she was younger. I waited until I was 50. (laughs) She um, went right after college and she is a social worker by trade. I think from a very young age, our dinner table looked very different. We had people who were recipients of her programs. Mm. We had all shapes and sizes and colors and sexual orientations from a very young age. I just saw the world very differently and experienced the world very differently than kids my age did. And so I, my parents are activists. Uh, They have marched for every possible cause. My grandmother has been arrested uh, for um, (laughs) marching on behalf of AIDS victims and getting drugs finally approved for people during these epidemic. So I come from a, a long line of very strong activists and powerful women in their causes. And so I don't think I ultimately had any choice but to do (laughs) something that my parents would approve of, which is to work on behalf of those less fortunate. And so I wouldn't have known, I guess, when I married my husband and all of a sudden for the first time in my life, I didn't have financial stress. I needed to make sure that I used that lack of stress that I now had to make life easier for others. I wanted to say that I'm really glad that you clarified why your grandmother was arrested because I think most people today think of their grandmother for being arrested for, you know, driving when they were like 95 or something. (laughs) So thank you for clarifying. She was hauled off in the back of a van um, with a bunch of other activists and uh, spent the night in jail, yeah. You know, this. I'm a big musical theater person, actually. I, I often say that I'm a musical theater queen trapped in a lesbian's body. And so <laughs> I know a lot of lyrics from um, Sondheim shows. And there's a just a beautiful, beautiful song that you may know called Children Will Listen. Yes. And I can get goosebumps or tear up thinking about that song. But that's your story, right? Careful the things you do, children will listen, right? And of course, it's told from that other angle. But from your angle, it set a foundation that you could not ignore. I didn't know at the time. And of course, you know, when you're growing up and you are a teenager in your early 20s and you have all that angst about um, your own individuation and who you're going to be. And I, I don't think I wanted to be like my parents because (laughs) there was never a moment that I wasn't being briefed on or tested on what was going on in the news. And it wasn't gentle being their kid. And it wasn't, I, it was not, I'm not a soft upbringing, I would say. Uh It is something I'm aware of as a mom myself now, which is to model instead of, you know, beat my kids over the head with a message. And certainly you know, we tailor our conversations to be intelligent and elevated and intellectual as much as we can. But I found this work or I found my way back to this work once I had kids, right. once I had my first kid. It just, all of a sudden, I just was, how do I say this? Propelled. I was propelled, instantly propelled into a headspace of, I have to help people because so this is really hard. It's so interesting, Jessica, because I jokingly wrote in my notes here, not everyone changing diapers begins to think about how to do good in the world, that many of them are wondering if their Xanax has a refill or if it's five o'clock someplace. And so to make that connection while you're up to your ass in diapers, right? I, I want to hear that story. Well, when I was in college, I worked at the probation and parole office in Burlington, Vermont. I worked at the probation and parole office. I worked at the state's attorney's office and I worked for the medical examiner's office. So okay. I was always working in Oh, and I worked at this UVM medical center in the psychiatric ward. So I, I sort of had a path 
in yeah. that direction. And But what I think stuck with me the most was at the probation and parole office, having my own clients basically that were my age and they were mothers who were either on probation or on parole who had written bad checks or stolen things to feed their children. And they were my age and they had kids and I would get to go back to my dorm and I would get to go, you know, hang out with my friends and have a normal college life where they were going home to a lot of challenges. And I, I can't say, oh, wow, that was like, you know, from that moment on, I was determined. I did. I didn't, I I didn't feel that maybe I just went and had a regular college life. It was like my sophomore year in college or something. And then I just kept, you know, I graduated, I came back to the city and I was working at Broadway video, which is Lauren Michaels production company for a few years. And I, I, I wanted to be in entertainment because I honestly think that the messaging was so tough in my, in my childhood around, you better do good. It it wasn't said, you know, explicitly, but it was implied that I think I didn't want to do that. I think I wanted to have something like fun and entertaining that might be lighter for me. Uh And it wasn't until I had a baby and I was like, whoa, wow, this is hard. I don't really know what I'm doing. And I have resources now. I I can't imagine what this must be like. And I just clicked into a completely different mode. You and I were talking before we hit the record button about sort of our paths. And I, I, I sort of think about life as like carrying, you're carrying this rollerboard. And inside the rollerboard are these vast array of experiences and people you meet. And you carry them with you wherever you go. And there are times when you open the rollerboard and you see them and they they make sense to you as some kind of a pattern or some kind of a path, right? And I can't help but imagine that you didn't, there you were changing those diapers. I can't imagine that whether it was consciously or subconsciously, you weren't thinking about those women you just described up in Burlington. Like it, it, it would be hard for you not to, right, mm-hmm. make that connection. And But here um, I live in New York City where there's so much excess. Absolutely. And there's so much need that how is there not a network, an easily found network? And so I was, you know, our, our apartment was like filling up with things that people were sending to us. And I had said, you know, nobody send us anything, please. Like, I don't want anything. I just want to, you know, give to charity. I didn't even like name a charity that people could give to. I was like, just don't give us anything. We're fine. And people like corporations would, you know, generously send us things and, you know, gifts. And, and then, our daughter started growing and these expensive <laughs> items like she started and growing. Crisps. I know. Well, if you have a newborn, you don't know how fast they grow. They do like fast. That. And so three months later, all of these three-month-old clothing are too small. And it just felt like she barely wore them. And so I just had a pile of stuff and I didn't know where to send it. And so it was in the middle of winter and I was a new, you know, mother of a newborn. And I wasn't very, I wasn't like, a, like I was a natural mom, but I wasn't like a whiz, you know, I was like good, but not great. Yeah. Um, and so I was, I was like stressed. I found it very stressful. And so I. It's a big job. Just, yeah. Well, for the first time. And I hadn't, yeah. I didn't really have any experience with young babies at that point. And so I looked around, I was like, does does somebody pick this up? Is there just a way to give this stuff to somebody? I don't, I don't need it anymore. And it's in the way and it didn't exist. And I kept asking friends and what do you do with your stuff? And I'm like, oh, it's just sitting, it's just sitting in storage. And I just thought, let's just mine all this stuff and, and give it away. So I partnered with the Robin Hood Foundation. They helped me give it away and it really struck a chord and, uh, very quickly, People heard about the idea. We did a huge warehouse drop-off weekend in September of 2001, right after September 11th. I was just going to say, right? Yeah. Yeah. That date. We were crushed. It was like people were so energized and so into 
each other. Yes. (laughs) They were into humanity. And so we just, it just, it was a springboard, an incredible springboard. And it really launched us. And uh, we've been, you know, going strong ever since. The Good Plus Foundation. So that's how, that's its origin story. And and by the way, I, I often tell my clients, never stray from your origin story and you will never go wrong. That at, right, if there's ever a discussion about, should we do the blah, 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 or maybe we should get out of doing the blah, blah, blah. I say, tell me your origin story, because in the origin story, you will always find kind of the kernel of truth about what's what that organization is fundamentally about. So anyway, just a little aside there. Tell me about the Good Plus Foundation and the model. What's the, because okay. right, it started as, you know, what you just described, but it has become something different. Tell us about the model. Yeah, the model is, is that, like you said so perfectly in the beginning, we pair goods and services with programs and families to create an upward trajectory for them. That means we do in-kind grant making to, grant making to programs. So strollers, cribs, diapers, and all of the things that are such critical necessities to our families. And we pair them with parenting classes, co-parenting classes, GED classes, things that will change a parent's life. Because the original model, and we can go back to this later, was really, I felt just like giving stuff away without a purpose. And that felt like a Band-Aid to me and sort of empty. And I wanted to really go deeper on that. What we learned along the way is that fathers have been really left out of the equation. And we saw a real need to support fathers, not only with stuff, but also non-custodial fathers to not only provide them with stuff, but also classes, co-parenting classes and GED training and all of the things that will help a father not only get his life back on track, but bring that family, weave that family back together in some form. That's so smart. So smart. Right. No, because we talk so much about the absent father. We don't talk about how do we shore up? How do we provide the tools and the resources to fathers who are in these situations to be able to be great fathers? Right. We we are not in the business of judging. We're in the business of helping. And we also, you know, too. there's a lot of reasons why fathers aren't home with their families. And it starts way back with the war on drugs, but you yes. know, we don't need to get into all that. And also this dad myth that, you know, is obviously very pervasive. We see a completely different kind of father in our programs. And we see fathers that really, you know, put some fathers that I know to shame that have all the resources in the world. So our fatherhood programs are just one of my favorite parts of our work. What we found when we started working with fathers was the need for our Good Plus Training Academy, which is... The part of this organization that trains social workers and trains care providers Hmm. around father-inclusive services, because, you know, we have to go sometimes out and find the father. We have to teach social workers how to do that. We have to help people check their personal biases because... There are people who have grown up without a father who are social workers and care providers and who understandably are looking at that father who has gotten his GED, has gotten job skills training, has shown up every week for co-parenting class, comes to the door with diapers and is ready to go. And then he might meet with someone who says, "Mm, I don't know, you're a father of color. I don't trust you. And it happens every single day. And we have kids that go into foster care because of this. And so our training academy really helps to help people understand their own personal experiences and to hopefully, ultimately give that father a chance. It's a long way from donating the 3T outfit that no longer fits, isn't it? And I I wonder, you know, I often evangelize about the importance of vision, having a big, bold picture of where you want your organization to go, like a compelling destination that funders and staff and board can rally behind and say, 
yeah, I want to go there with you. I want to go there with the Good Plus Foundation. And it feels to me like that's exactly what you've built. And I, I'm always curious. You got started by donating the 3T outfit, right? Did you see this big thing down the road? Like, how did the big thing come to you? Did you put the right people on the bus to build the big thing with you? Jim Collins, yes. Um, <laughs> we... we um... There's no way I would have known any of this if we weren't paying attention, paying such close attention to the needs of our families. We have chosen to go deep instead of wide. We've had every opportunity to grow. We've had every, you know, media moment that we could have blown out and, you know, made television shows, whatever it is. That would really, to me, take away the focus, which is what are the needs of our families? and by paying attention, we had, for example, during the pandemic, when our programs closed down, but the needs of our families only escalated, we came up with a way to help our families who weren't, you know, our program leaders weren't able to see their families that they were overseeing. And we realized that people can't pay their rent. They have no money for food, utilities, diapers, medicine, keeping their lights on. And so we created a micro grants program and it worked so well that that's now become part of our model as well, which is these cash grants that are so desperately needed. Right. Why should we not be doing that? So we're, I think at 800, we started last year and $850,000 later, we're giving cash grants away. So it's these moments where I would call them evolutions or small pivots but it's just paying attention to what the needs are of our families. And I will admit that when I did Mothers and Babies, it was much easier to fundraise from individual donors. They got that. Yes. But the more sophisticated, or as you called it, like as our onion grew more layered, you know, it wasn't so popular to incorporate fathers. They were like, wait, you, in my strategic leadership class, I learned, you know, people suffer losses. When you change. Yes, and, you do. And I was changing. We yes. were changing. Yes. And, you know, this new sort of harder approach to family stabilization to include the father, which comes with complicated biases and dynamics. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, there are complications around fatherhood that are easy to pay attention to. But not if your eye is on the prize, which is stabilizing this family and getting them the services and support that they need so they can climb out of poverty with our help. And so there is no way I could have anticipated where we would be today because that only came from being in lockstep with our families. I think that's so worth amplifying for folks who are listening is... Far too often, we who run organizations think we know the answers. But what Jessica is talking about here today is that she started thinking she knew an answer, and then she started to listen to the people she was, the families she was working with, and they started to talk about what they needed. And then you began to pivot, as you described it, in order to adapt to make sure that the families were at the center of this experience, not the organization. Did I hear that right? hundred percent. We are not at the center. We're learning. We learn every day from our families. We learn every day from our program leaders. We are students and we're just constant. That's why I went back to school is because our board, my team, And these families and our program partners deserve me to be an amazing leader. If I'm, if I have this platform and I've had this opportunity to serve, I'm going to be the best student I can be. And my team at Good Plus Foundation is extraordinary. Our CEO, Catherine Snyder, has been with us for 14 years. She is, I I can't even believe what she has evolved into herself, which is someone who will work with me and be so open to pivoting. You know, we changed our name. 
because baby buggy was not going to fly with foundations, especially when we were asking for funds for fatherhood. Totally. They're just like it, 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 there became like a disconnect between our previous work and our future. Yes. And I just, we good plus good plus services and education. So we evolved into the good plus foundation and, you know, it takes a really patient leader in Catherine Snyder to accept that I don't have a roadmap. I mean, we're very, you know, if you look at our financials, we're extraordinary. We're one of the, you know, top organizations on Charity Navigator. On, I'm sure you wouldn't have me on if you hadn't checked, <laughs> checked us out. But um, <laughs> 90 cents of every dollar goes into our programs. Although, you know, I did study this in school too. There's I'm, somebody, yeah, right? Like, we can't run our organizations from a car. Like, why are we not allowed to spend more money on our staff? Why are yeah. we not allowed to spend more money on having nice offices for our volunteers? Yeah. But since we're not. Right. You probably took a class. Of, I'm thinking there was a class about the overhead myth and there's probably Dan Pallotta article you probably yes, read in Dan one of Pallotta, your Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, that's a whole nother conversation for so a whole nother yeah. podcast. Yeah. It's like, okay, you want to spend all this money on program? Who is going to do these programs? Who's going to market them? Who's going to run your website so people know about them? I mean, and if you I spend too even. much money, you look, you know, like you're frivolous. And it's, it's just how money. do you attract the best talent? Anyway, let let us save that for another day. Another day. I want to Keep talk about Catherine half. for just yes. a second because what I want to say is yeah. that people who listen to me know that I believe that the single biggest indicator of a healthy nonprofit is the relationship between the board chair and the CEO. I always say to funders, when you make a site visit, you need to have lunch with the board chair and the CEO. If you see them as a true partnership, in alignment, being thought partners, agreeing, disagreeing, respectful, trust, then you know that that plane is in really good hands. I refer to that partnership as co-pilots in a twin engine jet. Tell me about that relationship with Catherine, because it's really important. I understand from conversations I've had that you have a special relationship with Catherine and you're the founder, which actually complicates things a bit. So talk just a it little does, bit about yeah. that. Yeah. We do disagree. Thank goodness. Right. She does. She doesn't listen to me a lot. She or she does listen to me, but she tells me no, which is great because sometimes I'm like, we have to do this, and I'm too much of a visionary. And she's conservative and so smart and so fiscally responsible. And I make her stretch a little bit, and she definitely makes me stretch a little bit. And I I sometimes get annoyed at her, and I seethe quietly, and then I'm like, she's always right. She's <laughs> always right, and it and it's just I need her. And I think she needs me, but either way, she has all of my trust. Even if she never listened to me, she would still be the person I want to do this with. I admire her so much and our donors admire her so much. And just this alone. So when we started, we were, you know, she came from the Rockefeller Institute. She worked at one of my favorite places in New York City, the Tenement Museum. Oh my gosh, I um, love the Tenement Museum. Oh, it's the greatest. When we started, you know, we were doing a lot of events and we had great individual donors who loved, you know, Baby Buggy. They loved that model. They loved feeling like they were part of helping other families who were in similar, had similar age group kids. And just, you know, they connected with that initial mission. And we would partner with fashion companies or all different kinds of companies. And, you know, you ask people to show up over and over again. And it just became for me, just, I don't, I don't like going to events. I don't like to go into any events ever, but especially ones where you're, you're not making that much money for the organization to begin with. And you're asked to pull in celebrities and all of that just felt like, I, I can't be this person. I'm not this person. Right. It, it feels far away from the work. And she, you know, Catherine, she did it. She went through those years, but I knew like, she's just such a deep soul. And she, I knew this wasn't the work she wanted to be doing. And so we have transformed into an organization that really does like one or two events a year. And we're now funded by like the best foundations instead of individuals 
giving small amounts, we are now really funded mostly by wonderful and, you know, really change making foundations. Well, and I'm I'm so glad you said that, Jessica, because right, the skeptics listening would say, okay, Jessica has access to celebrities. The money is going to be easy to get right? And it might have actually, maybe it was part of an early catalyst, but your CEO was smart enough to know that's not an organization that's built to last, right? No, and And, I don't don't want that, yeah. Right, and you didn't want it anyway, right? I don't want to be on that slippery slope of what celebrity can you get to come to your event. I don't think that celebrities validate the needs of our families. Like no. I don't. Oh my gosh. I, I'm I so glad also, you said that. I'm so glad you I, said that. I don't that. even connect that. Like showing up and wearing like a $5,000 dress on a red carpet to the needs of the families and how they are living day to day has nothing to do with each other. And I understand like those are great events that raise a lot of money. But for me personally, I don't, I can't do the glamorization of poverty. It's just like, for me, it is like, my neck turns red. Well, and, and, and not to not to mention, I mean, not to mention, and I, and you know, I ran an organization where we had a lot of celebrity stuff, and I've been to others. You're really lucky if that celebrity really even remembers what the cause, the mission is, is or they if they shown show up. up for. Yeah, right? it's, and it's, it's just there's no pay, real. Yeah. There's no heart or soul connection, typically. Now, some celebrities are very different. Like absolutely, like, some are some, really you, amazing. You know, for I happen sure. to be a just a I I pray at the altar of Judith Light because she gets the causes she's associated with. She picks them and she stays with them, right? But that's not always the case, and it is not the way to build a sustainable organization. And so, no. what you've actually been able to do, it sounds like, is to broaden the kind of work you do, dig deeper into the systemic roots of the problems and therefore appeal to foundations and others who are actually looking to get at the root causes of these things. That's what foundations are looking for. Individual donors too, but the right individual donors, right? Yeah, I I think that uh, here's what I would say if you are, you know, a founder a CEO, a board chair, on a board, you have to expect that you're going to lose people along the way. If you change in any direction that's new or you introduce something that seems like very different from, you know, what you were originally doing, as long as it makes sense, as you said, as long as that origin story is still there, but you're always going to make new friends if you do it with integrity and if you do quality work that's really focused on your constituents or your, your population. And I, I, we've definitely lost individual donors when we shifted to towards fatherhood and shifted towards a much more com- complex and sophisticated model. It wasn't so easy to understand mothers and babies anymore, yeah. but I, I'm just willing to lose those people for the right people ahead because I I just don't ever want to get far away from the work and I don't want it to be built on something that isn't sustainable, which is like us hiring a PR company to get celebrities to show up or I just, you know, I, I just don't want to be in that kind of, like I said earlier, I want to go deep, not wide. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine that was easy. I mean, I, I assume that was hard. No, it was right? hard. And, you know, we had board members who were like, oh, so-and-so just had a baby. Are we going to get her to, you know, speak on our behalf? And I'm like, there's people having babies every day. That mom over there who isn't famous is also having a similar experience. Like I just, the, the I don't value that kind of I value that kind of support. I don't, I value everybody's support, but I don't like to differentiate. I don't like to differentiate and I don't like to build the model on events and celebrity. Well, and it also just is so dissonant with the, right? So much of that would be so dissonant. Far away from the lives of our families. Not disingenuous exactly, but dissonant in some ways. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. 
To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. We are actually having a really wonderful conversation with Jessica Seinfeld, who is the founder and the chair of the board of the Good Plus Foundation, a national nonprofit that uses a multi-generational approach to address family poverty. She is not only a graduate of the University of Vermont, but recently put on a cap and gown to receive a master's of public administration from NYU in 2022. And we're talking about being a founder and we're talking about pivoting. We're talking about putting your, the families you serve as central. Some very, very interesting topics. And I, do you and Catherine talk about, so I want to go back to the founder piece for just a second. Seems like you're very into it, even though you also write cookbooks and raise children, and I, I don't know what else you do. I, I, I would just be daunted. Do you feel like this organization is built to last? Absolutely. Now? Absolutely. Now it is. I uh, want you I, to tell people who yeah. are out there listening. I'm sorry, I'm, ju- I'm jumping up and down yeah. <laughs> because there are so many founders who get so tied to their organizations that in some bizarre way, they don't want it to be built to last because it is so much their identity. Jessica, how have you grappled with that emotional thing? Because it's a hard thing to grapple with. Well, I have always hired people that are far better than me and far more experienced and smarter and more accomplished than I am and have way more degrees than I do. And they have taken it. It has. They have dwarfed me by a mile in this organization. It it looks not uh, very much like my original model, which was a, a real band aid and just you know helping people in in their day to day lives, which right. is super important. Diapers are so important because if somebody doesn't have diapers, they can't drop their kid off at daycare for the day. And then they can't go look for a job or they can't go to work. I mean, it all matters. Every piece matters. But that we shifted to a model where you're, we are addressing daily needs. We are addressing long-term needs. We are addressing needs in the social service space where we can make the work better because when the work is better, our families do better. We are doing advocacy work around child support reform. We're doing in-kind grant making. As I said, we're doing micro grants. All of these things are so much bigger than I could have ever envisioned. And that is because I have the most amazing team and I hired well, and I am able to let them do the work. And I just, you know, do what I can. And like I said, I got a degree last year an MPA just to, you know, just to try to compete and try and to carry your level, extra, but I well, actually try to carry my water, carry, yeah, carry your my weight. Own water. Yeah. So I have a million questions about your master's degree in public administration, but first of all, I should just say mazel tov. And I, I think I understood based on the conversations we've been having, why you chose to pursue it. Because you had so much spare time. Let's start there. <laughs> Just that was a joke. <laughs> well, it was a pandemic. I got a pandemic degree. And so that was really challenging because not only are you going back to school after 30 years of not being in school, but then you're also trying to learn on Zoom and on a computer. And that was very challenging. And uh, learning financial management on a Zoom was pretty rough, but I got an A. I got a 4.0. I graduated with 3.998, which was... Congratulations. I, <laughs> that was How has that degree and what you learned informed your work as a board chair and a founder of this organization? It's a great question. I took a really wonderful class with Gordon Campbell around boards and being on a board, being a board chair, That was so helpful. I realized I have so much I can do, so much more I can do. And that's been really exciting. Didn't you also learn, Jessica, that being a board chair is a big and important job? Yeah. And I really learned more about the fiduciary responsibility, all the moral responsibility, all the ethical responsibilities that being on a board has. And I I knew it, but I didn't really know it. And my strategic leadership class was 
it was so helpful to me because I was having some frustrations as we evolved and grew. Yeah. And we grew towards this model. You know, I would call it in the beginning, we were more of an external organization with lots of events and lots of publicity. And like to pull back and to almost like turtle in and just become a more internal organization where we are just really sort of thinking and doing and keeping our heads down you know, that caused a lot of confusion, I think, for the our donors, our individual donors, like I said earlier. And I'm so close to the work that I wasn't understanding. Like, how could you not want to help fathers? How could you not understand yeah. what fathers mean to a family? Right. And, and it wasn't fair of me. And I really learned a lot about loss in that strategic leadership class. And the financial management class just gave me such an overwhelming sense of appreciation and love and gratitude for Catherine, our CEO, and for our financial team and for the people on our board who oversee all of our financials as well. I just, yeah, I was really blown away by my policy class um, and what it takes to, you know, I did a whole study on child um, child support reform in Texas and because that's something that we're really trying to um, make an impact with. Yeah, we work with the Aspen Institute on that. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I just, I it's just, it was a transformative experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm, my guess is that, that you also had a very interesting cohort of um, folks who were in the program with you. And I bet they were also teachers and to your teachers and students concurrently they were just some of the most extraordinary people and i i will say it was during a period of time right after the um the election pre 2020 election and um to go through that period of time and and obviously during covid to go through a a moment in our country's history with these exceptional people will was it was was really got me through it. So like learning got me through it, and this group of people in my cohort got me through it, and I was just made a better person. I think by every single one of the thirty five people in my cohort, and you know we we all got to study Good Plus together, oh. and you know they were just so impressed with Catherine and our team, and they just loved this organization and felt really privileged to have um, gotten to know the inner workings of it. And that was really, that was really fun for me. And also eye-opening to kind of be an outsider too Mm -hmm. and see it through their eyes. And so it helped us in many ways. You know, you discovered something in the pandemic that I believe is true about our society and about the nonprofit sector. I am often people who are sort of looking at the glasses half empty will say we have a dearth of leadership in our country. And they're looking at that with a pretty narrow lens, right? And I mean, a pretty visible lens, but a pretty narrow lens. And you with your, during the pandemic with your 35, me with my clients and my, you know, thousands of leaders of small nonprofits in my online membership site. I can't wait to spend time with them because that's where I go for hope. That's where I go to know there are good people in this world who are hell-bent on doing their part to repair the world. And I can't think of a better... So during the pandemic, I wrote a second edition of my book for those people, right? You actually sort of swam in a pond with those people. But the same outcome, which is... I am inspired and hopeful about the world because people like you are in it, right? A hundred percent. They were each one of them. I just, and you know, they really worked full time yeah, and raised children and worked as hard as I did and, you know, just managed to struggle and fight for this degree during a pandemic. And I just was every day felt so fortunate to have these future leaders, former leaders in other, in other sectors who said, you know what, 
I'm, it's time for me to do something that feels good. Yeah. And I just, um, I just, my, I, you know, I, I, I miss being in school so much <laughs> and I miss, I miss, um, I miss that yeah. inspiration. Yeah. Not that I don't have it every day with my own work and my own team, which I certainly do, but you know, that, that just the, all the different backgrounds and all the different people, um, who wanted, just wanted to make a difference was really special. And so incredible and so incredibly in, enriching too. Uh, you said something about, I, it, it was hard for me to imagine that we wouldn't be engaging fathers in our work. And there's a phrase by the, the Heath brothers, Dan and Chip Heath have written a book called Made to Stick, which is an excellent, excellent book. You okay. like it very much. And the first chapter is called The Curse of Knowledge, that once you know something, it's actually impossible for you to imagine not knowing it. And so for you to be able, to, for the the puzzlement you experience of people not getting that is part of that curse of knowledge because you're so close to it. It's so obvious to you, but it's mm-hmm. it's not their fault. It's just that it's not, they're not close to it in that same way. Right. Yeah. That was a very important lesson for me to learn, yeah. which is you can't assume knowledge on other people. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I say that all the time about every part of our work, every aspect of our work, especially our fatherhood work, where we would see fathers sort of just sitting in waiting rooms and lobbies on their phones while mom was engaged with a nurse or a doctor in the in the room. And the fathers would be sitting out there and not at all looked at or in looked in the eye, or, you know, the doctor would speak to the mom only and the right. dad would just be sitting there, you know. So, you know, I think similar teachers, teachers, do the Maybe same thing. Some t- yeah. So I, I think that that's been a great learning moment for us as well, which is like, this is not just in social services, this is happening. And, and, you know, the pandemic really helped with fathers being more uh, around in our programs a lot. They were around more and able to engage with teachers more. But what we saw you know, with our problems back in two, with our programs back in 2010 was that they really just weren't part of the program. And yeah. so once we saw that, we couldn't unsee it. We couldn't go back. We, <laughs> and so we made it. sure that every program partner of ours, if they're receiving um, in-kind grants or any kind of grants from us, they must engage the father. That's that's the mandate of working with Good Plus. And that's a, that's a key superpower of founder organizations is like seeing a gap and saying, no, 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 no. We've got to fill that gap, right? So I think it makes perfect sense. I have two very quick questions and I want to let you go. One, I would be I would be remiss not to ask you about your cookbook, about the world of cookbooks. Um, clearly Good Plus Foundation is a is in your kishkas, I believe is the Yiddish word, right? <laughs> yes, it, thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> are cookbooks in your kishkas too? Uh, I, I, I found myself thinking, you know, if I had teenage kids around the house, I'd go looking for almost anything to for therapy. And I, I wondered if it's also a Kishka project, is it therapy? Just real quickly, what's the, the cookbook piece of your life? What's that about? Well, it started when I had our first daughter and she started eating and she wouldn't eat anything that wasn't white or plain, just plain pasta. I felt really compelled having these hippie parents who, um, you know, fed us tofu and brown rice and vegetables (laughs) from a very young age (laughs) to make sure that my own kid would grow up eating healthy food and she wouldn't touch it. And so I felt really worried. And as a first time mom, I said, I I have to get her eating vegetables. So my first book, Deceptively Delicious, Mm -hmm. did really well. It was a big hit. I was lucky enough to be asked to be on Oprah and that really kind of set me on a course. And then, you know, I grew up cooking for myself. I never had any extra money. And I always had, you know, like a job in a restaurant here, a job catering over there. And so I really learned not only to cook for myself because I needed to, but also I was always around cooking to support myself to um, get through college. And so I've just always used food as an outlet, as a creative space for me. And then I'm really into problem solving. Mm-hmm. You know, I I wanted to solve a problem with uh, families in need, and now I I I also when I had a, my first kid and she was like two, I wanted to solve a problem for 
parents who have picky eaters. And then I had a, my third book was the can't cookbook for all my friends who couldn't Solving cook, another but had like careers. Yeah. So, and, and the vegan at times, which I think you mentioned your son. My son is, is vegan. Yeah. Yeah. So there are lots of people who want to experiment with veganism, but they don't want to be yelled at by someone who thinks you should be doing it a different way. So I yeah. like to just solve problems for people. It's funny. a very creative outlet for me. It's funny. So I'll just say that my my wife for nearly a decade was the head of programming at the Food Network. And so I I have sort of swam in the waters of cookbooks and talent and all of that. It's funny to hear it t- talk about it as problem solving, but but I think it also speaks to the notion that food is a centerpiece for people's lives in a real way and making sure that everyone can appreciate and enjoy that food as that sort of centerpiece of culture in a family is really a very, it's a very cool thing. So uh, like I said, many layers to the onion. Last question. (laughs) Last question, and then I must let you go. You're chatting with nonprofit leaders. Any advice for the nonprofit leaders out there uh, in how to create a great relationship with your board chair? Ooh, that's a great question. Listen, Mm. even if you don't agree, just let your board chair feel like you heard her or him (laughs) or they. Like, just listen, because if they are the founder or if they've been involved with the organization for a while, they're bringing something to that conversation that might be very valuable just to hear even the like the a grain of truth in. Maybe there's something there and just process it. Don't say no. Don't don't have no on the tip of your tongue. Just yeah, listen. I love and that. And also don't be afraid of change. Don't be afraid of change. Very good one. Also, don't be afraid to tell your board chair if things are not going well, right? Trust that your board chair is in Mm -hmm. this with you. I think that's another piece. And and follow the evidence. Follow the evidence of what's happening with your families or what's happening with your cause. Just always stay true to the evidence. I love all of those, all of those things. Jessica Seinfeld, thank you for the work that you're doing. Thanks for taking time out from your day. I know your kids are all home and probably client hanging around uh, all yeah. on their phones. I wish. <laughs> yeah, their doors are all closed, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I just want to say thank you. Thank you for not rejecting your parents' DNA out of hand, for keeping it in your rollerboard. It has actually that plus... Clearly, your determination has um, is making a world of difference. So thanks for chatting with me. I enjoyed it very much. Me too. Thank you for this service that you provide to our community. It's really essential that um, someone speaks for us. It's really wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And for those of you who are listening, I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks for the work you do. As always, take good care of yourself, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.